Peter, I don't know if yours is on. I feel it. No? No, it's it on. Is. Yeah, it's on. Yeah, it's on. <laughs> hey, everyone. This is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this Patreon-only episode of 5 to 4, we're taking you to the People's Parody Project's annual convening, where Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael hosted an event about free speech. They talked about what speech the court protects, what speech the law detests, and who really counts when it comes to the First Amendment. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. We're talking free speech today and, you know, maybe the biggest culture war fixation on the right over the last several years has been the idea of cancel culture uh, and the general belief that, like, the left is wielding its cultural power to inhibit the speech of conservatives. Uh, you see it on the conservative base, you see it in the uh, in the media, and you're starting to see it sort of trickle up into the federal judiciary. And so we wanted to chat about it because um, I think it's reflective of like a pretty simple idea, which is that conservatives are trying to exert control over spaces where they don't currently have a lot of control. And that frustration has sort of manifested in various different ways that we're going to talk about. Uh, so we're going to talk about the speech rights that the conservatives have sought to protect, those they have ignored, and where I think they're going next. And before we get into it, just want to say thanks. You know, thanks for coming out. We appreciate it. And thanks to People's Parody for having us. Yeah. Yeah, give it up. Thank you. Uh, Michael, I think I'll uh, kick it over to you. Yeah. All right. So to get this started, I, I wanted to zoom out for a second. We talk a lot on the podcast about the conservative legal movement, but I do think that's a little bit of a misnomer. And what I mean by that is there is a large reactionary movement that's been going on in this country for decades that is a reaction to the New Deal, to the civil rights movement, to the sexual revolution. And there is a subset of that movement that works in the legal sphere. And that's what we call a conservative legal movement, but it almost gives it too much credit to call it that because it's only legal in the loosest sense, right? What's motivating the stuff we're going to talk about today is their reactions, right? Their reactions to women's liberation, to black liberation, and to uh, any effort at, uh, you know, redistributive uh, politics. So that is going to be the heart of their First Amendment jurisprudence is uh, a dislike of the things they see in culture that make them uncomfortable. So I want to kick it off talking about a case from this term, Kennedy v. Bremerton School District, which is about a JV high school football coach. JV, emphasize. JV. Not even the varsity coach. No. Uh, So this guy... Everybody has, I'm sorry, everybody has in their mind the picture of the JV coach at their high school. And it's like, are you serious? This dipshit? Is taking his case to the Supreme Court. Right. Okay. Not just emotionally still in high school, but physically still in high school. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's right. And, and it, it makes sort of the facts of this seem even more ridiculous. This takes place in uh, Washington State, and it's this uh, JV football coach who has a practice for many years of after each football game, right after the teams sort of shake hands at midfield, uh, taking a knee at the 50-yard line and leading a prayer 
you know, supposedly this started just for him, uh, but the students quickly joined, you know, shocking that athletes would do what their coach is doing right after a game. You know, he thinks he's on like Friday Night Lights or some shit, right? Yeah. Like, uh, he thinks this is like the most important thing he's ever going to do. He's taking kids' helmets and he's like holding them up in the air while he gives these impassioned speeches about Jesus. And the school district, you know, learns of this and it's like, you got to cut it out. Uh, you are an employee of the government and you are leading students in prayer. That is an obvious, you know, uh, concern that we are maybe violating the establishment clause of the First Amendment and uh, establishing a religion. And he said, no. <laughs> he said, fuck that. I am going to the media and I am raising a stink and I am going to continue to do this. And he did three more times. Then he got put on paid leave after there was a whole big uh, thing. The local news came. People were hopping the fence and rushing the field and knocking over the band to, to get in on his prayer circle. The administrators were getting death threats for trying to shut down his prayers. Uh, I'm sorry, that's Texas shit, right? Like, yeah. I'm from Texas. That, yeah. that feels like a Texas thing. But the Pacific Northwest is quite surprising to me that yeah. this is happening. So he, you know, he fights this in court. And so here's the thing about these facts. They are pretty much impossible to spin in a way that isn't an establishment clause violation. And there's a degree to which the Supreme Court doesn't even try because they basically lie about the facts instead. They ignore the years of explicit lead prayer and say they're only looking at these three instances after he had been reprimanded, and they describe them as private and personal, mm -hmm. and the kids didn't have to be there, and jump through so many bullshit hoops to come up with a version of the facts that they could say is an example of him just expressing a personal sort of religious belief that is protected by the First Amendment's protections of the free exercise of religion. So it's important to, to conceptualize this case properly because what's happening here is the court is making clear that it is going to do whatever it can to protect the public displays of Christian belief. And... <laughs> And it's going to be the crazies, right? It's going, to be the, it's going to be the ones who are, you know, like this guy thinks he's like a minister or something. Like pretty, pretty clearly he cannot imagine himself as anything other than a very important figure if he's going to the news and he's leading these prayers. And he, again, he's a JV <laughs> football coach. <laughs> Just the contrast between how he clearly... Steve Champs, 96. <laughs> how he views himself and, and what he is. But this is going to be privileged speech going forward. Uh, the court doesn't want to say that explicitly, but they're going to do everything they can to ensure that it is. Right? Because they're coming from a place where they believe in, you know, a Christian America, a white America, an America that they think 
they no longer recognize, right? It's the same insecurities that are underneath concerns about immigration or white genocide or falling birth rates or any of that other bullshit, the idea that they're losing their country. And they do believe it is their country. Mm -hmm. So this is, I think, unfortunately, just like sort of the opening foray for this court, but this is where we should expect uh, a lot of free exercise to be going to protected Christian displays in public spaces, shared public spaces like public schools. Yeah, I think something that's really significant too that comes out of Kennedy is um, Justice Gorsuch writes the majority opinion and he says basically the court is doing away with this lemon test. So I see a lot of nods. Actually, how many people here are law students? Raise your hand. Everybody. Um, (laughs) So the lemon test, if you've taken First Amendment or maybe con law, it was covered. You know, the lemon test prohibits excessive entanglements between the government and religion. If there is a religious sort of display or religious behavior that the government does, it has to be neutral on the point of religion. You know, the government can't be seen as inhibiting or promoting, encouraging a religion. And again, those excessive entanglements. And in this case, Justice Gorsuch is like, "Mm, we don't like that. No. Because, right, on these facts, the results that the result that comes out of the lemon test is not one that they like, right? And so does away with the lemon test, which is which is, as Michael said, would have given us a, more, a much more clear result here, and just says, oh, we're gonna look at the history and tradition and context of these kinds of religious displays for deciding if if they're okay or not. And in his mind, of course, this was okay. Yeah, that's right. Uh, they sort of shrug their shoulder at the lemon test, a very well-established legal president, and are like, nobody, nobody ever uses the lemon test anymore. Right. <laughs> what are you talking about? I, I could have sworn we overruled that ages ago. Yeah. Yeah. Did we not? Exactly. That is essentially their approach. That's only a loose paraphrase. They uh, literally are like, that, that test is obsolete, uh, which it's not, but... Uh, but now it is. Uh. Yeah. 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 And looking forward, right? Like this, this sort of framework that he set up for analyzing these situations, just looking at history and tradition, like how fucking subjective is that? Right. Like, you know, just looking at like the vibes, I guess, from now on, right. Right. (laughs) When the government does some religious indoctrination of children, we're just going to see like if we if we like it, right? Yeah, from the perspective of a law student, it might be, uh, or a lawyer or a judge, they might just be two different types of tests that you are comfortable manipulating or whatever. But if you're an administrator in Bremerton School District or wherever, and you have an employee doing something, right, uh, in the school, I think... Asking yourself, would somebody think the school is promoting a religion here or inhibiting the exercise of a religion here? That's a pretty easy question to yeah. answer in most cases. What does the history and tradition of public education <laughs> in America tell us about the appropriate you know, boundaries of behavior here? That's one that, I mean, what? They're going to just like call up a, you know, a historian that they have on speed dial? It's... It's not a helpful test for the people no who actually... deeply rooted tradition of JV football at all in this country. 
so yeah, it's it's not useful. It's not a good test uh, on the merits, but even in terms of administration, it's it's poor. This is, it's a bad case. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah, that's Thanks, that's Peter. that's pretty that's pretty much. It's a good transition. <laughs> yeah, so from some sucky cases to some even more sucky cases, you know, we have on the one hand the protection of certain kinds of speech like Michael is talking about, and you can see the Supreme Court signaling how they're going to be treating this kind of speech and the overlap with so-called religious freedom, right? That this is where the court is headed on these issues. But on the other hand, there are lots of speech areas that the court really does not like, right? And is clearly sort of a a hypocritical area. I just want to say really quickly, like when I was in law school and even since then, I think I've said this on the pod, I hate the First Amendment. Um, I think it's really, I think it's really boring. It's really tedious. But I have realized since law school, and I think through doing the podcast that like, this is really important, actually. And the Supreme Court has, I think, muddled its way through all of these tests and all of the jurisprudence to a point that it is sort of incomprehensible. And that helps powerful interests stay in power, right? That helps the sort of hegemony perpetuate, right? That like the common person does not understand free speech in what context in different areas, you know? I I remember my outline. I took a First Amendment class, 3L, and my outline, I didn't make an outline. I made a spreadsheet and I had just like all these different cases and scenarios and tests. And I was just like, okay, I can just refer to my spreadsheet. It's a mess of an area of law. And now you see they're like chopping all that up to make it even messier, right? To make it like, now we're just going to do this history and tradition thing. So it's a mess, but there are some specific areas of speech where this court, you know, the modern court has signaled that they are not interested in protecting these free speech rights. So in the context of arrest, protest, student speech, the Supreme Court obviously takes an opposite approach and constricts those free speech rights all of the time. We make the point on the podcast a lot that like Supreme Court adjudication is inherently unobjective and it is unobjective in the political sense, right? In that like law is an exercise of power and politics, but it's also Supreme Court adjudication is also unobjective in the sense that it is personally subjective to the justices, right? There is no case that is not filtered through the human biases, the experiences, the lives of these justices. You know, this this idea of objectivity is obviously a myth. And I think that's important to point out in the free speech context because, so say in the religious freedom and free exercise cases, the justices can see themselves. At least the conservative justices, they're all devout Christians, right? The justices can see themselves either participating in or at least liking public prayer, right? They think this is a good thing. Whereas on the other hand, you know, we're going to talk about retaliatory arrests with police. The Supreme Court justices cannot imagine themselves in a situation with a police officer where they end up on the wrong end of the handcuffs, right? And so that subjectivity, I think, is baked into this jurisprudence and really important to remember as we go through some of these cases. The first one I want to talk about is an episode that we already did, Nieves v. Bartlett. This is a case about retaliatory arrest. So I think everyone here can agree that if you are arrested 
for using your free speech that is unconstitutional. Except the Supreme Court says, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. You know, this is an interesting case because of the intersection with, with police activity and free speech, you know? So what happened is this guy goes to Arctic Man. It's Burning Man, but in Alaska. <laughs> um, with snowmobiles. <laughs> um, <laughs> he gets into this, like, really short, not even argument, an interaction with a cop where he walks away and says, I do not want to talk to you. Walks away. Then he has this second interaction with a cop because he's telling the cop, get away from this child. You can't talk to a minor. The first cop comes up to him and arrests him, right? And says the words, I bet you wish you talked to me first. Clearly a retaliatory arrest. The cop is telling him, I am arresting you. I am treating you like this now because you walked away from me first, right? Now, that, again, on those facts seems to be such a clear, or what people believe, right, what the common person would believe is a free speech violation. But the court, of course, says no, and that as long as the officer had probable cause to arrest this person for something else, then there isn't a First Amendment claim here. So I think it's important, this case, for highlighting the justice's disconnect, again, with real people, and justices' subjective understandings and biases about the world. All of the conservative justices are Christian. Again, they cannot relate to any interaction with cops, much less sort of being labeled a criminal or having done something bad that is worthy of arrest. But something like, you know, a public prayer feels really good to them. Cops are the people who escort them out of a Morton steakhouse. (laughs) (laughs) Um. So all of this is important, particularly, you know, in my, in my world, I'm thinking about the police a lot and police activity a lot. So this is important because it gives a green light to police to slowly erode speech rights, right? This kind of arrest, retaliatory arrest, is really a ubiquitous aspect of American policing today. Somebody gets arrested for disorderly conduct because they showed up at a protest, Somebody gets arrested for assaulting an officer because the officer is the first one to initiate the interaction, then escalates that interaction, then doesn't like it when the person responds, right? All of these are sort of very common. I represent people on this stuff all the time, right? Very common to find yourself getting arrested for your free speech rights. And the court doesn't have anything to say about that here, right? The court doesn't have anything to say about how This is police power as social control. This is police power as censorship of speech and behavior that should be protected. And you would think that the Supreme Court would have something to say about that. They not only don't have anything to say, they are endorsing it, right? As long as the cop has a different reason, it's fine to do this in a retaliatory way. It's fine to retaliate against somebody for using their free speech rights that should be protected. I want to talk about like protests generally for a second because sure. I think there's a like a real lack of jurisprudence about the potential chilling effect of the presence of police, yes. especially like stalked, you know, riot police at protests generally. It's something that courts have justified saying, well, there's like a there's potential for violence, right? Right. Now, putting aside the fact that the people who start that violence are the police. <laughs> Almost always. Um, I just I, think I, that there it's an area where there are no cases about it. 
Cases are never brought because they would always just get tossed out immediately. But it's super obvious to a common person that if you are trying to engage in a public demonstration, which is like right at the heart of the First Amendment, and then 50 dudes with shields and batons and guns show up to stop you, that that is going to have a chilling impact on your speech, right? Yeah. It's, such, it's such an obvious thing that just is completely absent from First Amendment jurisprudence. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you see this again and again across the jurisprudence that does exist, right? In the case of federal officers retaliating against you for exercising your free speech rights, the Supreme Court has said in a case called Egbert v. Boulay that you don't have a Bivens claim. You can't sue that officer for violating your civil rights. That cause of action just doesn't exist for you, right? So there's no accountability either even when the government does infringe on your Supreme Court right, um, your Supreme Court rights, your First Amendment rights. Um, <laughs> and then moving to student speech, right? You have a really good case study in Morse v. Frederick, Bong Hits for Jesus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the Bong Hits for Jesus case is a student speech case. And that really shows, it's a good case study in showing how the Supreme Court treats speech it views as unimportant. It subjectively thinks, right, the court saying something like bong hits for Jesus, that's not important. That's silly, right? We're not protecting that. But it's also, I think, a good case study in showing how the Supreme Court treats people it views as unimportant, right? This student, right? We're separated by class. We're separated by age. We're separated by so many things. The Supreme Court, again, cannot relate. John Roberts cannot relate to having a banner that says bong hits for Jesus because he's not cool. <laughs> <You know? laughs> in Morse v. Frederick, I want to quickly point out in terms of like looking forward where the conservative mindset is on these issues. In Morse v. Frederick, which is again about student speech specifically, Justice Thomas has a particularly, I think, scary concurrence in that case which is absolutely authoritarian in tone and substance. Justice Thomas there says, quote, in the earliest public schools, teachers taught and students listened. Teachers commanded and students obeyed. Teachers did not rely solely on the power of ideas to persuade. They relied on discipline to maintain order. Remember, we're talking about bong hits for Jesus. (laughs) Like, yeah. Justice Thomas, calm down with your, like, cruelty fantasies, you know? But I do think we know where Justice Thomas is on on student speech. But if you're taking his concurrences seriously and noticing this trend where Justice Thomas's once fringe views are now much more commonplace, are now... um, uh, Ascendant. Yes, ascendant, absolutely. Then, um, you know, this this is a scary area, again, for speech that comes from people the Supreme Court does not care about. I did want to uh, note also when we're talking about uh, the the court seemingly being happy to see other people's speech chilled, right? Whether it's students or protesters or whatever, it's a good time to also consider like the contrast of speech that they are very concerned if there's even like a minor chill of it. And, And that is... Uh, campaign speech, especially when that campaign speech is coming in the form of money, <laughs> and and when there's money involved, then then it's you can lend your campaign money uh, and charge it interest, and the idea that the federal government can prevent you from fully recouping that loan 
with a, uh, donations collected after you won the election <laughs> to collect interest and make money off your campaign and off your position as a sitting member of government that, that the federal government can't prevent that. That's your speech. That's your speech. Yeah. Making, making money off that making money loan. Making making money off your campaign and off your position as a senator is free speech that we cannot chill. And if you read those cases, if you read like Citizens United and that those like lines of cases, like there might as well be like uh, like a watermark with a bald eagle in the background of those fucking cases. <laughs> like the way they talk about this speech yeah. is as if it's like our highest ideal, yeah. right? right? And you're yeah. just you're just talking about money being spent by extremely rich people and no one else. Yeah, it's yeah, fucking wild. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, again, you you see across these cases, whether it's the speech they like or the speech they don't like, right, that the Supreme Court is fine with certain kinds of infringements on, on free speech where they think social control is needed, like Michael said, where they think the perpetuation of rigid hierarchy in society is needed, where they think law and, so-called law and order is needed. They're totally okay with doing away with, with those speech rights. But lastly, for... For my part, I wanted to bring us back to this point, I think, from Peter's introduction, which is this pipeline of ideas in the conservative legal movement. We've said, you know, many times that the Supreme Court really knows its audience, knows who it's talking to when they write their opinions. But that's also true of the reverse, right? Conservative media, conservative politicians also, when they are publicly, you know, sort of espousing their views, talking about their policy, their policy priorities, the Supreme Court's listening to that, right? They are together in this conservative legal movement. And a good example of this dynamic is in the context of protesters, you see the pipeline of the dialogue about protesters in conservative media and conservative politics. And you can see how obviously the Supreme Court might rule on a protest First Amendment case, right? Conservative media talks about protesters as if they're a scourge on society, that they're violent, that they need to be contained. They talk about protesters as dangerous to police and and framing it as police as our, our heroes for tramping down on people's free speech rights when they tear gas and shoot and attack protesters. And so, you know, media and politicians were so quick to like clutch their pearls at protesters outside um, Brett Kavanaugh's home when the Dobbs decision leaked, right? And they even proposed, you know, federal legislation to quash those kinds of protests outside the homes of government officials. Um, So you see just like how this theme of the infringement of free speech rights and why and the justification for that, you see how that theme in media and in our politics really is effectuated in the legal system by by this Supreme Court. Yeah, that's right. I think it's also worth noting, do you remember when states started passing those laws that are like, you can run over protesters? Yes. 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 <laughs> I don't have any comment. I was just like... <laughs> On the point of state laws, not a Supreme Court case yet. I don't know if it will be. Just literally just had this thought listening to both of you. You're is, welcome. Is... Uh, <laughs> It's not hard to write the opinion, you know, that Clarence Thomas will write saying that, you know, Florida's don't say gay bill is constitutional and not an infringement on a teacher's First Amendment free speech rights. That having a rainbow sticker up or a picture of your your same sex partner 
is, uh, could be disruptive, right, right, to the orderly administration of education mm -hmm. that Clarence Thomas envisions. So looping back to my very first point, in a time when people are being fired, losing their jobs, censored for who they are, the court is taking a stand on things like the ability to arrest people retaliatorily, right. taking a stand on the ability of Christians to pray in public spaces, right? They are saying, yeah, this is what's important to us, not gay teachers, not right. uh, trans kids, not any of that. And I think it's, that's just the way it's going to be until uh, the composition of the court changes, yeah. hopefully soon. Look, uh, you, can, yeah. you can always uh, hope, you know? Of natural Thomas, causes. He goes, he goes reviewing over the summer. Maybe he gets into an accident or something. <laughs> All right, That's calm as down. tame as Michael can make that. Yeah. <laughs> so this is public, Michael. Um, so let's talk about where they might be going next. Uh, and to understand that, I think it's important to understand that a lot of like serious legal academic discussion stems from like super petty complaints originally, right? And so surely in like the past few years, everyone here has seen some variation of a dynamic where some conservative posts on Facebook, something that's like just, just atrocious, just the worst shit you've ever seen in your life, right? And then their nephew is like, hey, um, you're a piece of shit. I'm going to report you. Facebook steps in, restricts the content or perhaps bans them. And then they complain that their free speech rights have been violated. And their nephew is like, you're actually a fucking idiot. The, <laughs> the First Amendment does not protect you against Facebook banning you. And, uh, you know, Facebook's a private company, and that's that. This basic dynamic has been pretty disconcerting to conservatives because they believe that these are like liberal controlled spaces and also that they're very culturally influential, right? That social media is important. This really hits like a crescendo after January 6th when all the social media platforms banned sitting president Donald Trump. <laughs> um, and they were like, wow, this is, this is the last straw, right? Um, Can't even organize an insurrection. Right. <laughs> Without getting banned from Insta. <laughs> Jesus. I found out in the course of researching this that Snapchat banned Donald Trump. I, no, no more snapping from the, from, from the Donald. Yeah, definitely um, a good thing. Can you imagine getting a Snapchat from Donald Trump? <laughs> so, uh, quick aside, like, a lot of research from, like, NYU, for example, has shown that Facebook's algorithms boost conservative speech much more, um, but... That's sort of in the realm of reality, and we're talking about what conservatives believe, and these are very distinct things. So there's like this theory floating around that perhaps social media companies banning you or restricting your speech is a First Amendment violation, and that I think the savvy take was, well, that's just, that's just what dumb people think. They don't understand um, the First Amendment. Um, but there's a twist here, which is that that's what Clarence Thomas thinks. Um, <laughs> There was a case from last year about whether politicians could block users on social media or whether that was a First Amendment violation, right? And that gets up to the Supreme Court and they dismiss it as moot. But Thomas drops a concurrence and he basically says, you know, maybe social media companies can't ban people arbitrarily. And he has a couple of theories for this. The main one is that they are common carriers, 
common carriers, if you're, it's like a legal designation for companies traditionally that transport goods and people and are not allowed to deny service arbitrarily. So Thomas sort of, and this also now applies to like telephone companies and to some degree ISPs. And Thomas basically says, well, maybe like Twitter should be treated like this. And he has a couple of reasons for this, which don't really make sense, but I'll touch on them a little bit. One is that they're functionally monopolistic, um, at least in some ways. And that's a big part of why we regulate common carriers. Now, I don't really think it's true that they're monopolistic, um, at least in the traditional sense. But more importantly, I think this sort of like misunderstands why it matters for common carriers. Like if it's 1848 and you need to catch a train, there's like one train, right? Like you're, so if they say no, if they say like, you're not allowed on our train, that's a huge deal for you. You're You're fucked. You're not going anywhere. Like that's it. Similar to like, you know, if it's 1936 and Bell Atlantic says you can't use our service, that means you can't call anyone, right? Your ability to like participate in the economy is being impacted. That's not really true of social media companies. Like Clarence Thomas says that Google has 90% control of the search market, which is true, but like that doesn't mean that it's hard for someone to use a competitor for Google, right? They can use, you can use Bing if you fucking want. Uh, it's fine. Ask Jeeves. <laughs> um, and so like, you know, you're, you're the, any den, like given denial of service by one of these companies doesn't really do anything. It doesn't like inhibit your ability to participate in the, con- the economy in any meaningful sense. And also he sort of skips over the fact that all of these common carriers, they charge a fee for access, right? You pay Delta a fee to get on their airline. You pay your uh, ISP a fee for access, uh, your phone company, et cetera. You don't pay Twitter for access. You get access for free. Twitter is not selling access. They are selling a platform and that they curate and then sell to advertisers. Well, you, um, you do pay with just a little bit of your soul. Yeah, that's, every, that's right. Every that's time fair enough. <laughs> um, so if the government like steps in and starts managing this process, then they are directly controlling the product that Twitter is selling, which would be very unusual and sort of just one of the many reasons why this doesn't make any fucking sense. So if you like, he's sort of arguing for state-run social media here. So if you take a step back after like years of being the party of the free market, all it took was Republican boomers getting like banned from Facebook for five years. And they were like, we should nationalize the entire industry. (laughs) Uh, there, there are also like there's a public accommodations argument that he makes, which I don't understand either. Um, mostly because like they do let anyone use their service. It's just that you have to like adhere to conduct rules, which is like also true about like Banana Republic. You know, you can't you can't go in there and start screaming about QAnon either. Like you'll be asked <laughs> to leave. Um, so, but whatever. I Ginny's on her eighth burner account, and uh, Clarence <laughs> is trying to help out any way he can, I suppose. So this concurrence drops. Uh, at the same time, laws are like popping up across the country. Um, there's one in Florida that like basically says that um, social media sites need to justify all of their content uh, decisions, which would mean any banning of a user, any deleting of a tweet or post or whatever. Um, and then there's one in Texas, and the one in Texas gets challenged, stayed, and brought up to the Supreme Court. And in May, the case comes down on the side of the social media companies, but it gets three votes from Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas saying 
yeah, maybe, you know, maybe we could restrict social media companies like this. And this, the, the case wasn't on the merits. It was about a preliminary injunction. So, you know, maybe they are not going to go there at the end of the day. But it seems like perhaps there are three votes for treating social media companies like common carriers or whatever. And it's sort of the same, a story of the same pipeline that Ree's referring to, right? Like you have this extremely petty complaint in the Republican base. It gets sort of uploaded into conservative media. Conservative lawmakers latch onto it and pass certain laws. And then you have a Supreme Court justice being like, yeah, you know, I will entertain this argument, right? He's like sending out a signal. And they very quickly, these like conservative legal activists run a case up to the Supreme Court, just a little test run, like let's count the votes and see where we are. And you know, someone like Thomas is not playing a passive role. He's signaling up and down the line of the pipeline uh, about what he wants to do. And I think before we wrap, I think it's probably worth talking about campuses, like the cancel culture uh, sort of scare on campuses, because although there's no current like major case about it, I think it's important to realize that this is just part of the same basic trend where like there are spaces that they don't control effectively, and they would like to assert control over those spaces. In spaces where they do control, they want to remove as many rules as they can remove. Social media, I, you, I, I don't want to say that like the left controls, but like some like hegemonic liberal, you know, understanding seems to dominate social media like uh, guidelines, right? And you know, on campuses, you just have like young people and professors, and it's like that's not a Republican demographic. Um, <laughs> and so they want to like exert as much control over those situations as possible, and that's why you see like the cancel culture hustle talk about campuses so much because they're just frustrated. They're just frustrated that there are these spaces that they don't control, spaces that they view as important, and they're trying to uh, assert themselves as much as possible. Yeah, which I, I think just as an aside goes to show. What a bunch of dupes the centrists are. The ones who are not on board with the the conservative project here, but are do see their sort of privileged position as like an arbiter of what is and isn't a reasonable, you know, bit of discourse, right? What's a reasonable argument? Is, you know, the bell curve reasonable or or not or whatever? Like they are sitting in a position of power. And they see it threatened by a generation who's like, no, you're full of shit. All this stuff you thought was like reasonable debate is crap. And they don't like it. And so they're going along with this very fascist project. Just total dupes. Yeah. That's it? All right. All right. Wrapped. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, everybody, for having us. We appreciate it. Next week. <laughs> no, we don't know what we're doing next week. Next week, Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta, a case about tribal rights. It's not going to go great, folks. Follow us on Twitter at 54pod. Thank you for subscribing to our Patreon. We love and appreciate your support. We'll see you next week. Five to Four is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. 
Our production manager is Persia Berlin, and our assistant producer is Arlene Arevalo. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Thank you.